Hello, everyone. The next session is about to begin. Ship Finance. Thank you. Well, thanks everybody for joining us today. Um, this is the uh, ship lending panel. Uh, interesting times in banking generally, so uh, you know we'll touch on that as well. Um, immediately to my right is uh, Kevin Humphreys, president of Lloyd's Register Americas. Uh, next to Kevin is Michael Parker, chairman of Global Shipping Logistics and Offshore at City. Next to Michael is Evan. <laughs> um, the Director and Global Head of Maritime Finance at CIT, and all the way at the end is Andrew Showit, uh, Senior Vice President, Ocean Industries of DNB. So I think we'll start with what uh, is a timely topic right now, which is, uh, you know, bank failures, government bailouts, and, uh, and what's next. Uh, Michael, you know, this started with uh, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank uh, moves on to Signature here in New York, which has made itself a presence in, in the New York market anyway, and now spreads to, uh, and perhaps for different reasons as we know, um, to a 150-year-old uh, Swiss bank. What's, what's next, um, you know, obviously speculating here, but what's next and uh, how do you think this affects the banking market and the lending market and shipping? Uh, I, I think I'll, I'll answer the last question first and maybe not answer your first question. I mean, I don't think it really has any impact on shipping. Um, shipping, actually, if you look back at, apart from some German banks, clearly, who got overextended, other banks that suffered in the global financial crisis had nothing to do with shipping because shipping is a relatively small part of most banks portfolios, and of course most banks don't actually do any shipping. I think this, this is a case of, of um, some of the uh, areas of regulation that were not addressed if after the financial crisis, particularly with the regional banks in North America. The contagion for Credit Suisse is, you know, in, intellectually is difficult to understand, but banks are about confidence. Uh, and. You know, we've seen what the outcome the Swiss authorities have decided to take there. I think it's more broadly that we got used to cheap money and with interest rates rising to deal with inflation. Uh, you know, there's a, it's not the new normal, it's the old normal. It's back to how those of us who remember the 70s will recognize that inflation then was much, much higher. And we're getting back into a real world where money is no longer free or cheap, uh, return on investment requires more than just buying an asset and hoping it goes up in value or expecting it to go up in value. So I, I hope this will um, be the end of, of what's been a sort of uh, reaction to that. There are, there are clearly, you know, central banks are now going to be very conscious of the broader impact of their interest rate decisions which we're going to see over the next week or so from the US, the UK, EU, and others um, decide whether to pause some of that. But getting inflation under control is their goal, and I think that's that they will do that. In the context of shipping, of course, the cost of interest in terms of cash flow uh, when interest rates are high is not inconsiderable. But as you heard, particularly from the dry bulk panel, people are paying down, have paid down debt dramatically, and, and many of the owners and CEOs talked about 
uh, zero net debt. So I think the shipping industry as a whole is in a very good position from a debt perspective if this um, banking crisis were to go on. Evan, are you seeing any fallout repercussions um, from any of this yet? No, not really not very much at all. A uh, few questions when uh, Silicon Valley Bank came out. Um, Signature Bank, we know a few owners who maintained operating accounts there. Credit Suisse is a bit new, but we're really not seeing anything uh, affecting our business. So our business, we're still writing new business. We have a, actually quite an active year. It's not slowing down and not affecting our client base. And we have a, the wider bank is a very strong, stable funding base. And so we're not seeing any impact on us at this point. Andrew, uh, and any thoughts on how this might uh, affect the market, you know, syndication or otherwise? Yeah, I think I would echo um, a lot of, of what both Evan and, and Michael just shared. I think this is obviously something that is is still quite fresh and is obviously moving uh, quite quickly. So I think, you know, from our perspective, um, it's very much business as usual as well. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, dare I say noise. It's something that clearly uh, is is, you know, the first thing um, on everyone's mind at the moment. And I think that it obviously does create a lot of uncertainty, particularly as it relates to uh, the capital markets and, and whether there are uh, issuances that you know, folks have been contemplating that can get done. But I think from looking at just this, the, the syndication market uh, for shipping in general, I think that you know, at least at this point in time, you know, my, my view is that it's um, unimpacted at this point. I think, you know, we, we closed the syndication um, of a transaction last week um, in the middle of all of this. So I think that that sort of just gives you some of the flavor uh, as to as to sort of where um, where banks are. And generally, I think that the banks that are participating in that market in the syndicated shipping market um, generally are quite strong, as, as Evan mentioned. Thanks. I'll uh, stick with you down there, Andrew, and work my way back. So. Shipping, obviously, uh, across the sectors has been strong over the last few years. And, you know, as Michael points out, um, you know, we heard the uh, Bulkler panel, that's hard to say, um, talk about zero net debt, um, you know, going forward. You know, where, where are the opportunities going to be um, for banks and lending lawyers, uh, you know, more importantly, uh, you know, to... Uh, to going forward, right? If uh, everybody's got strong balance sheets, everybody's paying off debt, um, not a lot of asset movement right now, uh, where, where are the opportunities going forward? So I think, you know, as, as bankers, and we all know the themes of, of there's been, as you mentioned, Michael, I think a lot of, um, a lot of prepaying of debt, a lot of sort of um, maximizing sort of shareholder returns, at least in the case of, of public shipping companies. But I think that um, as bankers, we obviously like uh, to see our debt repaid. I mean, first and foremost, that is a, that is a good thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, that creates a situation whereby uh, we also like we also like net interest income. So you need to figure out ways to redeploy that capital. And you know, we 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 talk, and I'm sure we will get into a bit around sort of the 
the, the lack, the general lack of new buildings um, that we've seen recently uh, for many different reasons. But I think, you know, the, the, the activity that um, certainly over the past, call it six to 12 months, has really been on the refinancing side. I think that um, especially when you look at some of the um, sort of leasing debt that was put in place in a different point in the cycle, I think particularly in the tanker market, um, which clearly I think has benefits um, at certain points, but at the same time, it's, it's relatively expensive and, and relatively prohibitive. So I think that what we're seeing is a lot of unwinding to the extent that that's possible um, of some of that lease financing and trying to sort of normalize uh, the capital structure, so to speak, by putting in place kind of your traditional bank debt. Thank you. Evan, where are you seeing the opportunities? I know your model's a little different than Andrew's. Yeah, we're seeing them across the usual places. So some of the owners have a lot more cash than usual, but there is, as Andrew said, there's the traditional refinancings. We're seeing it across, okay, the container owners, container ship owners, okay, don't need as much debt as they used to, but bulk carriers and tanker owners still like to have moderate leverage. We still see S&P activity. Um, so ownership changes hands, owners like to refinance. Um, we're back levering some of the private equity and debt funds. And that's an interesting way to do it. They have a, a certain market where there's always activity. So we, it's, we're not seeing a drop off in activity with all the cash, maybe some more moderate transactions. One, two ship deals as opposed to fleet refinancings? Is that what you mean by more moderate? Or? No, I mean 40% leverage instead of 60% leverage. 40% leverage. What so happened to the days still like, Sorry? What happened to the days of 90% leverage? Now you still talk to some of the other guys in the audience here <laughs> for that. We have to wait for the vessel values to go even higher before we get back there. Um, and Michael, uh, what are you doing over at City? What's, uh, what's the model today? Well, I agree with both of the previous speakers. I mean, there is stuff still going on. Um, clearly, in the LNG and the container sector, the order book's very large, and those ships will need financing. The other thing, I think, is the Chinese leasing houses are currently sort of out of action, given the political situation there. No doubt they will come back at some point, but you know they were growing their portfolios very rapidly until, until COVID. I think... Um, there is a lot that is sort of bubbling beneath the surface that we haven't yet touched on, which is going to be the retrofitting of the existing fleet. As the dry bulk owners were very clear, none of them have ordered any new ships, partly because they either don't want to yet make a decision around future fuels, or they have worked out that actually the fewer ships you have, the more money you make. And actually that's a good place to be for now until you have to make that decision, which we'll come back to under the ESG discussion, hopefully. So I think, you know, we know that um, as emissions get more and more transparent and are measured, retrofitting to lower those emissions, whether you call it energy efficiency or whether you do other things, is going to be increasingly important, and that needs to be financed. The average ship owner owns five and a half ships. They're not companies that list on the New York Stock Exchange. That is the world fleet that needs to be maintained, needs to be invested in, and will need to be invested in by 
um, cargo owners because they'll want to use those ships, but they'll want to use the ships that have the best environmental footprint first. And so I think we'll see a lot more what I'd call um, smaller financing r rather than financing lots of new ships which aren't yet being ordered. We'll see other forms of finance to help retrofit the world fleet. Most of the capital expenditure between now and 2050 is on retrofitting, not on new vessels. And that will, that will get financed. Um, I suspect we'll also see a lot more corporate activity, uh, including consolidation in those sectors that have, less, have done less of it. And as some of the new technologies come in, we may well see new entrants into the industry uh, and the agenda here is being driven much more now by cargo owners who will start to um, define what they want to see in terms of the, uh, the, the vessels they use and potentially the fuels used on those vessels. So the good thing is all shipping lenders are in a good position in terms of the quality of their portfolios and therefore capital should be available to help the industry in the transition. Thank you. Um, that's a good segue, I think, into uh, talking about ESG a little bit, Michael. Um, can you give us an update on the Poseidon principles, and particularly in connection with MEPC-80, and maybe we can loop Kevin in here after? Well, MEPC-80 is probably the most important meeting of the IMO, certainly in my 30-something career in the industry, because it's going to define whether the IMO is the main regulator of shipping going forward. So a report issued today touches a little bit on the previous panel. The IPCC has issued a report today really essentially saying we're going to miss 1.5 by probably 2030 and the damage to the planet is going to be much more severe, i.e. what they say is at two degrees it's much, much worse in terms of you know, some of the impact on coastal regions. So I think the, the, the question really for everyone is even if the reality partly triggered by the Ukraine war around the need for energy security even if the reality is we're going to struggle to meet 1.5 we shouldn't change the importance and the ambition of what 1.5 represents the way in which the shipping industry gets decarbonized is through the money that will come from cargo owners and the capital that will come from the financial sector. That, that's what's going to make this happen. And so you have regulators in banks, central banks, you have cargo owners like the COSEV Alliance and the Sea Cargo Charter who are doing all they ca can to make sure that that ambition is maintained. Without that ambition, then it won't happen. What we heard from Knut particularly is there are technological time barriers to that but most of that will be overcome ultimately through, through finance driving the pace of that change. And so it's very important that we stick to the 1.5 and we committed as the Poseidon Principles to implement this year a 1.5 well-to-weight trajectory to be transparent against in our portfolios. Next year, many of the banks who are signatories to the Poseidon Principles will have to commit to targets for 2030 under their membership of the Net Zero Banking Alliance. The Net Zero Banking Alliance is part of the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero signed just before COP26, which committed around $130 trillion of finance for the decarbonization of industry globally. 
that, that money, much of which, of course, sits in institutions in, in this country, is waiting for the def final definitions, accounting definitions around climate risk and the scope three definitions for shipping. Remember, every cargo owner, the scope three emissions are the cargo emissions from the ships that they move their cargo on. So the vested interest is not just the 3% that shipping produces, it is every cargo owner's supply chain and the impact those emissions have on that. And for some cargo owners, that is significant if, if the maritime part of their supply chain is, is large. So I think we're going to see a huge impetus in the next couple of years coming primarily from cargo owners, but reinforced by the more enlightened governments committed to a 1.5 that, that will drive this. And as I said, I think it's very important that the 1.5 ambition is maintained even if the, the, the reality in the world, for lots of reasons that the previous panel touched on, makes achieving that 1.5 difficult. If we start talking about policies around two degrees, then we are implicitly condemning future generations to a much more serious environmental state than the one we should be striving for. Kevin, what are, what are you seeing owners do to meet these goals? Sure. Th thanks, Michael. So, so Lloyd sits in a slightly different channel uh, th than the rest of the gentlemen, and, and we provide risk advisory uh, to our banking clients, private equity, and, and to owners as well, uh, primarily in the, in the realm of how do these technologies uh, apply and what are their costs and what do we see as, as future risks. I think one of the things to keep in mind is, as Michael mentioned, the number of vessels that we'll need retrofitted. This is a very expensive endeavor, and you need a very good idea, you know, what, what are the costs and what are the capital requirements coming down the road. When we think back to LNG ready, and I, I should probably use the dreaded air quotes, when I say that, very, very few of those vessels were actually converted, and the ones that were were extremely expensive, and it was a very long period of time to get those conversions done. So the, the, the capital cost and the, the loss of revenue cost was quite a bit higher than, than anticipated. So, so this needs to be accounted for in, in, in long-range long range planning. Now, when we look at a little more of a micro sense in terms, we've heard about green corridors th this morning. We, we've taken a pretty good look at some green corridors in Asia with heavy traffic that fits that model for, for fuel distribution. When we account for vessel ages and when we account for, for new buildings, we're still looking at about 30% of those fleets uh, that will need retrofits. So that's a significant capital requirement and a significant amount of yard time in a period where there aren't a lot of yard slots. I, I, I don't think the yard issue is, is um, I, I guess I'm putting it in, in, the, in, in the context back when we were talking about scrubbers and ballast water, there was quite a bit of talk, is there yard slots? Are we gonna be able to do this? And, and the industry rose to the occasion. I just think it's a, it's a, a challenge that just should be kept, kept in mind. One of the other things to think about too, is, you know, we, we do deal on new projects, and, and when we, we do that, I would say the risk management uh, technique now is, is the counterparties are not charter or an owner, the counterparties are charter or owner, fuel supplier, governmental agencies, shipyards, and, and engine manufacturers, and a class body to kind of bring those deals together. But on existing vessels, which most of you have, have portfolios on, uh, one of the other considerations is can I even convert it? Am I going to get a stranded asset? And that's really a conversation to have, particularly with your engine manufacturers. This is the MANs, the Wartzillas, the WinGDs of the world. In previous conversions, we've seen about half that cost just go into the engine. 
So that's a significant portion of that retrofit, which sort of goes beyond merely fuel systems, merely tank, tank structures for things like methanol readies that we're seeing today. So those are a few areas I think you have to at least tuck in the back of your mind as you're looking about outward risk and the capital requirements coming down the road. Thank you. Evan, how are the owners going to pay for all this, and are you going to help finance it? Sure. I'm happy to. I'm just, I'm just curious. I wanted to hear uh, more about what's the worst case uh, scenario for expense. So you have a poor, poorly designed 14-year-old Supermax. How much is it going to cost to make it ready? Cost prohibitive. I, I mean, it's, it, you, you, at that How point, many scrubbers does that take? Um, scrubbers. Yeah, well, if we think back to, to the one LNG conversion, for example, with, with uh, container vessel was 35 million pounds. So oh. I mean, it, was, it was a huge conversion cost, yeah. So I, I will say we're seeing renewed interest or, 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 or new interest in, in particularly a large number of methanol-ready vessels, which at the front end is, is largely a, a, a tank insulation issue and some structural issues. Uh, and we've seen relatively good success with methanol conversions. Um, done a number of years ago. So from a technological standpoint, I would say fairly, fairly low risk. Uh, of things like ammonia retrofits, much more complicated, uh, complicated not only in a technology standpoint and a cost, but also now crew, crew cost and standpoint as well um, for, for the operators. So it, there, there are some significant numbers there um, that, that will need to be accounted for. So not to fully duck Mike's question, so it, it's going to always be about um, compliance. So to finance an owner, they have to be compliant and it has to be commercial. Are they going to be earning the funds necessary to pay pay back the loan? Are we supportive of that one, that piece of financing? Yes, very much so. So how will it be financed? You've got zero debt on the asset and you're willing to advance 40% and let them use that money to, because uh, you, can't, you can't take a security interest in a scrubber, right? You can actually. Mm. Try to take it good off luck. the ship is a different yeah, problem, exactly. but yeah, you, yeah, you yeah. Good luck. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's an impertinence. <laughs> no, it would come along with the rest of the ship. That's uh, right. how you get your security. Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I think the, sh the short answer, if, if the question is, you know, are, are we willing and going to finance um, that type of activity? I think, you know, the short, the short answer is yes. I mean, we, we, we aspire to partner with, uh, companies that sort of share our net zero ambition. And I think that it really becomes a question of sort of how do you spread that risk amongst um, effectively everybody that's involved, whether it's charterers, owners, banks, and it, it can't come from one source because I think it needs to be, everybody needs to sort of contribute in that sense. And I think that when you look at a lot of the new uh, and uncertain technologies, um, infrastructure, and on top of that, you have sort of new and, and creative uh, carriers that are, that are being built with really no proven track record of doing so. I think it really is all about who you're partnering with. And I think that you know, we, that's the approach that we take, which is that we're not doing things purely speculatively. We're doing them with someone that we have done business with uh, for decades in, in many instances. And I think that we obviously have a trust in, um, in, in sort of the operations and, and the, the sort of net zero ambitions that we both share. Thank you. 
Michael, on the previous panel, um, one of the panelists said um, maybe some pollution is okay. Um, thoughts on that? Um, I, I, would, I would not say okay. I would say inevitable simply because we know that, we know that carbon and fossil fuels will be around for a very long time. I think the, um, I think referring to what Mark O'Neill said, I mean, the point is, it is about emissions, and I, and I think we, we, we need to be pragmatic about this and not be idealistic about it, but again, we have to remain ambitious. And what's gonna drive it is the consumer, because the consumer is going to pay for it. And the consumer is supported by the politicians, because they know their jobs depend on it. The politicians tell the regulators what to do, and so either shipping ends up in a dark place, where all the fleet is a dark fleet financed by uh, unregulated institutions, and no one cares about the emissions, or at least the ships only go to places where people don't care about the emissions. So I think just backtracking, it is about measuring the emissions on a, on a greenhouse gas basis, because that is, that is what the 1.5 means. So that means all technologies that reduce emissions are good and they should get financed. And they'll get financed because cargo owners will put their cargo on those ships. So we'll get back to what shipping finance has always been about or should have always been about, which is cash flow backed financing, not asset based financing. I thought the Vessel Values presentation was very interesting and I think I suspect is sort of the tip of the iceberg around how CII will affect values, but we all know that AER is flawed, and we use it in the Poseidon Principles because it is a regulation of the IMO. Everyone expects the metrics the IMO uses to be merged at some point in the next couple of years, and I think that will help everyone because it will bring in you know, the, the, the amount of goods moved, if you like, as well as just the emissions. But whether it is carbon capture, preferably to replace scrubbers on board ships, whether it is recycling the carbon, whether it is storing the carbon, there's a huge opportunity for the maritime sector, whether it's financing carbon carriers, whether it is re-injecting carbon back into, back into disused oil wells. The maritime sector has a great opportunity here, uh, and I think it's important to recognize all technologies, including wind. I mean, the interesting thing about wind is that until CII, until CII really is probably public, the amount of take-up of the use of wind has really been surprisingly small. I would expect that to change dramatically, that all wind technologies, if they are able to be fitted on a ship, you know, will reduce, you know, we know from certain pilots, they will reduce anything between five and 10% of the emissions, particularly on a long voyage. That is going to be very important for the choice that certain cargo owners make around the ship. That is worth the investment by the ship owner. And because, and this is the important thing about the banking sector, the reason that we were able to establish the Poseidon principles was because of the, and that's now four years ago, nearly four years ago, the only so far real transparent measure around the environment for, for a sector in banking is not just because we had an IMO regulation, but also because of the importance of the shipping industry to everything else which was then only sort of exaggerated by COVID. So it, it, everything is gonna get measured by emissions and soon it'll be available on your iPhone, on a database where the data currently privately owned by a ship owner sitting on an IMO database 
investors and cargo owners are going to demand that that data is visible to them. And that will happen, I think, within, within two years. So we're going to have a huge shift to everything this industry does being much more transparent, being measured about its environmental footprint, and the development of certainly a two-tier market, if not a three-tier market, where the consumer demands, if you like, the vessel upon which their cargo is moved. And, and at a macro level, those decisions will be made in the container sector probably first by, by the big consumer companies. So a number of them who are signatories to the COZEV Alliance set up a few weeks ago, Zemba, the Zero Emission Marine Buyers Alliance, which has the potential to be a purchaser of a huge number of container slots on some of the main routes. That's what's going to drive this because they know that their emissions, whether regulated uh, through banks, for example, or by bank regulators, are just going to be regulated by the consumer who's going to choose whether or not to buy the goods of that company or to buy a goods manufactured wherever they are that has an impact on the emissions in the supply chain. So, so that is where this huge shift is taking place. And is that financeable? Yes, that's very financeable. Uh, and ultimately in the capital markets, I think once the green corridors, which Knut referred to, and this is where you'll see zero emission shipping come into being in the next few years, alongside existing fossil fuel driven shipping, is you'll see the immediate sort of shift, if you like, whether it's through a large carrot or a big stick, through, the, through a carbon levy or contracts for difference, that you'll see every cargo owner will want their cargo to go on the green part of that corridor. And that's how you will get the shift in this industry taking place over time and the incentive for the production of those fuels. Most of the delay in the production of fuels is because the fuel producers say there's no demand. That, that, that is beginning to shift because there are people outside the existing fuel producers saying they will produce the fuels. And that challenge to the existing energy producers, I think, will, will stimulate what is already beginning to happen uh, in terms of you know, production of alternative fuels. Thank you. If, if I can add, just Please. add, add a, I mean, one of the things we're seeing in, in terms of fuel risk is, is a number of producers uh, not at all connected with Maritime coming to us for advisory saying, can you help explain Maritime? We want to distribute fuel, but we need to be connected to, to clients for, for long-term contracts. So I, I, I think um, the, the fuel risk while there continue to be challenges for the smaller vessels, particularly that, that travel to, to more ports, to, and the larger ports, you'll begin to see that infrastructure. The project I mentioned earlier is ammonia distribution out of Singapore, supported by Singapore government. So you'll, you'll begin to see that particular risk come down as time goes on. Thank you. It, it seems as though you know, we, we all recognize that fossil fuels are going to be around for a while, and we're going to try to figure out a way to use them more efficiently and more cleanly. Um, and that brings me to, you know, offshore, um, both, uh, you know, drilling, exploration, et cetera, and perhaps wind. I mean, Kevin, Kevin, what are you seeing offshore owners doing to, you know, combat, you know, their, uh, their emissions or, you know, just uh, activity generally in offshore? Sure. I mean, a lot of the exact same discussions we're having here, we're seeing in the offshore sector, um, which has become, as of late, very active. I, I think, Mike and I, you know, we were talking earlier a couple of years ago, if you had to told me what's going on today, uh, I don't think any of us would have thought that. But a lot of activity in Brazil, Guyana, Gulf Coast, as, as well as, as wind off, offshore. 
Um, they're looking for all the same mitigation uh, techniques. Uh, how do we, how do we um, uh, extract uh, more efficiently? Uh, how do we use alternative power sources? You're seeing inklings of, for example, nuclear power uh, to, to power oil fields and, and all the extraction. So, so I, they're having the exact same conversation. Um, they're under a lot of uh, mandates internally from their organizations at Exxon, Shell, the other major oil producers, and their main EPCs. So I, the same conversation is taking place. Thank you. Andrew, obviously DMB is focused on uh, you know, net zero and, and making sure that they're environmentally responsible in their lending. And you guys made some, some headlines recently uh, in offshore, and I was just wondering the bank's position, obviously, on financing offshore, what they're looking for when they're financing, when you're financing uh, offshore projects. Um. Yeah, I think, you know, many banks, as we all know, I think have sort of pulled back um, over the years from, from that sector, and we're talking just purely, I guess, hydrocarbons now and not wind. Um, but I think from, from our perspective, you know, we continue to uh, be active. I think we, we recognize, as you pointed out, that, you know, oil and gas is something that I think is necessary, uh, clearly, as we, as we transition. Um, and I think that as we look to, uh, as we look to finance, I think the, the, the reality of it is, I think, you know, we're quite selective. I think, you know, using the balance sheet um, as sort of a commoditized product, making loans, um, I think in the offshore space becomes a little bit more challenging, but we're still very active, although much more selectively. I think that you know, the one thing that you've seen uh, certainly in the past, um, call it year, let's say, I think the, ca the capital markets are clearly a much more um, larger piece of the capital structure for many of these players moving forward. So I think when we look uh, as a bank to, to finance the sector, I think you know, being a, a, a full corporate and investment bank, I think we are looking to supplement uh, selective use of the balance sheet um, really with, with the capital markets. And I think that that is going to play a much um, larger uh, piece of sort of filling that, that capital need and clearly, I think a lot of these companies, as we all know, have kind of been through the spin cycle and have kind of, uh, you know, restarted their balance sheet. So I think that, you know, that capital markets piece and having a, a less uh, reliance on the banks um, is something that uh, will continue to, to, to be the case moving forward. And again, I, I've, I said it before and I'll say it again, I think we also uh, look for companies that sort of share our ambition towards uh, transitioning towards net zero, um, whether it's in, in terms of making the fleet hybrid, um, carbon capture is something that we're seeing quite a bit on the offshore side as well. And I think that those are all nice pieces to the puzzle um, that enable us to selectively uh, make use of the balance sheet. Thank you. Evan, is CIT involved in offshore at all? No, I, I'm trying to support is that Andrew next? and DNB. Yeah. No, we don't, we don't do it, and I would be lying if I said it's because it doesn't look green. No, we don't, we don't do that sector. I, I still have PTSD from the last downturn in offshore. <laughs> <laughs> and to go back to the core message, like Andrew did, our core message is there's so much good business to do in the sectors and the geographies we're working. So financing responsible drywall tanker and container ship owners still keeps us 
plenty busy. Michael, is City able to finance offshore wind? Offshore, uh, uh, we are still financing offshore. So it's it's a, a small part of our sort of maritime sector, but as a U.S. bank, the regulators regard financing offshore drilling as actually part of really energy, and so therefore, um, we we from a regulatory perspective would have to factor that into our overall energy exposure, and, and of course. U.S. banks coming under some pressure around the size of the energy portfolios. I think it's more to do with the fundal ec economics, as Andrew said. You know, we've been through, well, I'd say it was sort of one very large crisis, but really split into sort of pre-Ukraine and post-Ukraine, um, or pre-COVID rather and post-COVID. I think it goes back to the transparency of the oil companies. We need oil and gas, so how it is extracted is very important, and the technology around that to, to, to minimize environmental damage. But it's, al it's also about the transparency of what oil and gas we need, and I think that's where there will be the distinction between public Western oil companies who will be challenged by their shareholders and by their governments and then the plans of state-owned oil companies who don't have the same scrutiny, um, but who will continue to produce oil and gas. So, uh, you know, I think the question is going to be one of the offshore, offshore drilling will get financed, but whether it is through Western banks or through the public funding of state-owned oil companies, we will see, but I suspect the sector itself in the way in which we were used to it, you know, it's become very consolidated, probably will one more round of consolidation, and then the question is, it may become a very safe business because the plans of the oil companies around their exploration budgets will become much clearer from a risk perspective, and therefore, you know, make it attractive to finance. Uh, and, and as Andrew said, maybe it'll actually be in the capital markets rather than by the banks. Thank you. Andrew, I'll come back down to you, maybe quickly touch on wind before we uh, run out of time. The, the one thing I heard repeatedly at the conference we attended a few months ago was that uh, you know, the, the, uh, the companies building wind installation vessels wanting to become more involved in wind um, can't get financing because they can't get long-term contracts and nobody's going to finance anything uh, you know, with short-term contracts. How is a, uh, you know, a kind of newer or somebody maybe moving into wind because none of them seem to be really new, um, going to get financing in this market? Yeah, I think, you know, that, that's the big conundrum there. I think you obviously have, um, you have a situation where I think there, 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 needs to be, there needs to be change. I think there's quite obviously a, a substantial ambition um, from all of the legislature that has come out. I think cl clearly this is an area that is going to be massive, but I think, you know, it all sounds great on paper but when, when you look to sort of making projects financeable, um, obviously the, the, the cash flows, um, which, which Michael alluded to earlier about you know, financing cash flows, especially in a segment that uh, certainly is nascent here in the US, I think you know, you're, you're relying on cash flows. So whether it's the, the government that needs to change the permitting process, um, whether it's whether it's the developers that 
you know, need to provide uh, financeable contracts um, and, and, and whether it's, it's the banks and other capital providers um, needing to sort of change the way that they're thinking about financing these projects. I think that there probably needs to be a bit of uh, movement from sort of all sides. But, you know, I think as we get closer um, and, and, and time progresses in these projects, which some we are seeing are getting delayed, I think that there will be action. Um, and, and I think we're all still quite optimistic about this market. Thank you. Anybody else want to comment on that before I? Well, I, I will say what, I mean, we're active in the, in the wind side, both on the, the, the certification of the, the fields themselves and, and uh, the vessel, vessel side. And, and what we're seeing in the industry, it's no, no secret, is, is the cash flow. The PPAs that they negotiated are just not sustainable with, with the business model that, and, and the cost structure that ended up uh, coming out of it. Uh, both the cost structure of the wind farms themselves and the cost structure of, of the vessels, particularly uh, Jones Act constructed. So I think they still have a little work to do to have a, a sustainable, financeable model. Thank you. And uh, for the last question here, I'll wrap it up with every, asking everybody to take a look into their crystal ball and, you know, does the Fed raise rates and by how much and uh, what's the impact going to be, Andrew? Starting with me? Yeah, sure. Why not? Well, I'm going to let the non yeah, I mean, go I, last. I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we, we've obviously seen a little bit of an unwinding of, of the inverted yield curve to some extent, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm probably, if I had to put my finger up in the air, I would probably say 25 BIP uh, raise. Evan? Oh, I have no idea except what I read in the newspaper like everybody else. So this is the 25 BIP raise and then it calms down, but I don't see how it affects our day-to-day -day business, so I don't pay too much attention. Michael? I rarely say this, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't know. I, I don't know either. I'm with, I'm with Evan. I, yeah, if, if, frankly, if I had any idea, I wouldn't have become a lawyer. Um, so anyway, uh, thank you guys for your time. Appreciate it. And thank you.